0: Good morning. It's good to be gathered today for convocation. I'm Brian Martin Burkholder, university chaplain, and as chair of the convocation committee, I wanna open this space um, today. For those who are right here in Lehman Auditorium, it's good to have you. For those connecting through Zoom and Facebook Live, we're glad you are with us today as well. The focus today is the title of a book, Disarmed, the radical life and legacy of Michael M.J. Sharp. At 34 years old, Michael J.M.J. Sharp, EMU-05 alum, was working for the United Nations group of experts in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, urging rebels to lay down their weapons when he and his colleague Zayda Catalan were murdered, likely assassinated, by killers with government ties. Marshall V. King, with us today, tells about Sharp's life, death, and legacy, and how modern Mennonites wrestle with their place and role in the world in in this book, Disarmed, The Radical Life and Legacy of Michael M.J. Sharp. Just released. It's in the foyer, you might have noticed. It's available for sale today, published by Herald Press, January 2022. In order to bring ourselves more fully in this place, just prepare ourselves for this um, presentation, Marciella has graciously agreed to come and offer some gathering music. We're featuring student musicians in the convocation this semester and grateful for your contribution today.
1: Thank you, Marciella, for your beautiful music. It's been great to feature student musicians uh, this spring for convocation. Well, good morning, EMU campus community, and a special greeting, of course, to our students. You know, we are just two weeks away from spring break. Uh, It's hard to believe Uh, and a great milestone is is coming as we begin to mark the third year of COVID in our country and our world, but a pandemic that is finally, finally in retreat. As I've said to you students many times over the last two years, you are all to be commended for staying the course amidst this relentless pathogen. The guy I want to focus on this morning, the subject of Mr. Marshall King's book, MJ Sharp, no doubt would have been putting together all kinds of plans to maximize an EMU spring break, even in a pandemic. He was just that kind of person. So first a bit about MJ and then a bit about MV, our speaker this morning. Michael J. Sharp, who went by the name MJ, was a superbly gifted and highly inquisitive 2005 EMU graduate. He majored in history and minored in German while here at EMU and went on to earn a master's degree in Peace Studies and Conflict Resolution from Phillips University in Marburg, Germany. MJ took to heart the EMU mission to serve and lead in a global context in the spirit of Micah 6.8, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. As one EMU prof put it, MJ had a peace-building superpower that was detectable as early as age 18. EMU professor Mark Sawin said he was a model EMU student and a model human being. A close friend said even back in college it was clear that M.J. would be a person who would head out to save the world. His wit and wisdom and humor were a gift to all those who knew him. M.J.'s passion for peace building took him all over the world, building bridges between people in conflict, first with Mennonite Mission Network in Germany, then Crisp. Christian peacemaker teams in Palestine, then with Mennonite Central Committee or MCC in Eastern Congo, and then with the United Nations as a small arms expert. After many years all over the world in remote and dangerous locales, on March 12, 2017, MJ, at the age of 34, was ambushed and murdered by unknown assailants at the time in the Democratic Republic of Congo. As a UN expert on armed groups, he was on his way. He was on his way to meet leaders of a new militia group in central DRC. His United Nations colleague Zeta Catalan of Sweden was also killed. They carried out a brave and noble mission. They were seeking to better understand the militia's structure, the support networks, and the recruitment and use of child soldiers. Despite this ugly tragedy and to honor his memory, MJ's family, parents, John and Michelle Sharp, and sisters, Erin and Laura, together with extended family and friends set the goal, set the goal of raising money to endow a scholarship in MJ's name at EMU. The scholarship provides aid to graduate students at EMU's Center for Justice and Peacebuilding, with priority given to students from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Two students are the recipients of that scholarship today at EMU. To get that scholarship going, a hike to Mount Kilimanjaro was organized by alumni shortly after his death. Mount Kilimanjaro was a place that MJ loved. 12 hikers, including two EMU students at the time, Riley Swartzen-Druber and Christy Kaufman, along with our very own provost, Fred Niss, and several alums and former board of trustee members trekked to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. Their efforts raised significant funds for an endowed scholarship in MJ's name. And guess what? Today, that endowment stands at $225,000 in gifts from 539 donors. A quarter million dollars raised to support prospective EMU students in honor of MJ Sharp. That's just amazing. What a legacy. MJ's death received international attention from all sides of the political spectrum, For instance, both Jane Fonda and Nikki Haley followed the MJ hike on Facebook. Other famous people, including Dr. Dennis McGuagy, the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize recipient, also followed the hike. And in May of 2017, EMU awarded MJ Sharp the Life Service Award. So that's a bit about MJ. Now I want to turn to MV, as in Marshall V. King. Marshall King is a writer and journalist in Goshen, Indiana. For more than 20 years, he has worked at the Elkhart Truth as a reporter and eventually managing editor. He has written for a number of other publications and and has often focused on food, writing a popular Dining a la King column. Currently, he is head storyteller, for the Community Foundation of Elkhart County. That's a great title, Head Storyteller. He, like MJ, is a graduate of Eastern Mennonite University, a 1992 alum. Both MJ and MV worked on The Weather Vane as editors of our student newspaper. Marshall King's book, Disarmed the Radical Life and Legacy of Michael MJ Sharp has garnered rave reviews. One combat soldier turned peacemaker says this, get ready to be disarmed as King's story of MJ breathes new life into how sacrificial love is still the most powerful weapon on the planet to disarm and challenge the violence we see around us today. It is my pleasure to introduce you to a first-rate journalist, a riveting storyteller, and an accomplished EMU alum, Mr. Marshall V. King.
2: Thank you, Dr. Huxman. Um, Thank you for the invitation to be here. Uh, Greetings to all of you both in the room and joining us virtually uh, as an alum who often sat out there during these sessions. It's a little surreal to be up here this morning, uh, but it's delight. So um, as Dr. Huxman said, I um, undertook the telling of the story or part of the story of, of Michael M.J. Sharp after uh, his abduction and death in March of 2017. The fifth anniversary of that death uh, will be next month. And so the book is, is out to tell. Um, tell the tale or, or a chunk of the tale of, of this young man's life. So um, and I'm here to tell you a few stories this morning and then, um, and then, and then take some questions as well. So um, MJ was uh, referred in the Pennsylvania Dutch term by some of his family members as a schnickelfritz. Fritz kind of a rambunctious kid. Um, I was probably called that as a kid, some of you probably were too, Uh, but this is young MJ. Uh, The picture on the left is also an early indicator of of one of his lifelong obsessions, which was with fishing. Um, He gained other obsessions along the way, um, or at least avocations, and so, but this is um, cute little MJ who could be quite rambunctious as a child. and this is with him with his two sisters, younger sister Laura, older sister Aaron. MJ was a brother, he was a son, he was a student, um, a friend. He was, you know, like many of us, that, that person who flies into the world and does things and is complicated and tries to figure things out. But MJ was smart and witty and always deeply engaged with those around him. Um, and, or, and so... Um, the story of MJ is is this remarkable one of someone who grew up as a young Mennonite. He grew up hearing the stories from the Martyr's Mirror. He went to Bethany Christian High School in in uh, Goshen, Indiana and then came to EMU in the fall of uh, 2001. He had wrestled with where to go to college. He could have gone to the University of Pittsburgh but he felt drawn to EMU uh, because of he hadn't been uh, studious enough in high school, perhaps. He wasn't admitted to the honors program, but he, he um, came to campus and, and was the guy in classes who would ask the hard questions and um, would challenge those around him. And he also spent time in his dorm room uh, with his roommates or playing games or um, driving his Porsche too fast on the local roads um, and playing online poker. Uh, in the dorm, uh, using the, f- the university's fast internet connection to learn how to master that game as well. So, um, MJ's time at EMU was was both good and hard. He was a weather vane editor at a time when uh, the U.S. was at war. MJ expressed some of his political convictions uh, on the pages of the Weather Vane, and and also did um, what uh, what one professor referred to as like you know, true good quality muckraking journalism to expose um, some of the stories on campus that needed to be told. Uh, At the time there was a coach who had had an improper relationship and MJ and his other journalists on the weather vane broke that story and held the university to account through that. and because MJ was, was forthright and put himself out there uh, on campus, he came under some criticism, too. And so uh, there were times when his, his campus life wasn't um, all free and easy. But, uh, but it was that kind of learning that also uh, helped him as he propelled himself into the world. Um, I thought it was interesting. MJ was, MJ was a, a glorious prankster. Uh, in high school, he... Um, he figured out how to hack the school's bell system at Bethany Christian uh, by with some other with some friends. Um, secretly running wires from the office into an empty locker and then one of them would go into the hallway when no one was around and cross the wires and trigger the bells and any of us who have been in a high school setting knows that the order to the day is from the bells ringing at the same times and suddenly when they're ringing randomly mayhem ensues so people didn't know what to do and over a period of weeks you know people just kind of oh there it is again but the school couldn't figure out what the school officials couldn't figure out what was going on and Finally, um, MJ's dad, John, uh, heard the folks talking in the office and knew that it was, it was uh, time and went home and urged his son to uh, to make this right. So MJ walked across the street to his neighbor's house, who was uh, one of the IT or tech guys at Bethany. And... and um, it inevitably owned up to the prank, but it remains one of the epi, epic pranks at Bethany. Uh, and in fact, at Goshen Brewing Company in Goshen, Indiana, there's a, a beer named School Bell Stout uh, in honor of MJ's prank. So, um, but here at EMU, MJ continued, continued his prankster ways, and uh, the Weathervane piece on the left was actually MJ's own ranking of campus pranks, including at least one of his own, uh, where he put water cups, Um, 900 or so water cups in the campus center filled, Dixie cups filled partway full so that they were nearly impossible to clean up easily. Um, And MJ gave his his own prank three, um, three emus. uh, So you can see it there in the middle although it's a little hard to read but. This is also one of MJ's pranks. Again, you probably can't read it uh, easily unless you're watching online, but um, MJ, as the university's hymn was ready to be launched on homecoming weekend, happened to be in this very building one night and saw the stacks of hymns awaiting its first singing the next morning. And he had this glorious idea of what if I can change the words to the hymn so that when it's sung for the first time, it's funny. Uh, so instead of Jesus my teacher friend it says Jesus my t-shirt friend and it's Christ of the dessert instead of Christ of the desert. Um, so MJ and his friends it quickly uh, undertook this uh, scheme overnight to change the words get them printed off put them in place uh, and then he came to chapel the next morning despite having been up nearly all night and was um, deeply disheartened to find out that the prank had been discovered by the alumni director and the prank, and the the proper hymn had been put in place in time. Um, But it it was just the kind of thing that MJ would undertake. Um, Playful, engaging, um, and with other people around him, gathering them. So even, this is a quote from one of his uh, high school friends, you know, talking about even when MJ was doing pranks, he had this ability to lead and inspire, this ability to gather people around him and um, lead a team or or urge people into places. Um, Dr. Huxman mentioned that um, spring break is coming in a couple of weeks and one spring break, MJ wanted to hitchhike to Florida rather than just drive to Florida. So he and a classmate hitchhiked while other people that he was going to be staying with drove, and it became a little bit of a race on who could get there first. But it was just, he wanted the adventure. He wanted to hitchhike rather than just ride in a car. MJ graduated from EMU in 2005. Uh, and like many people, was trying to figure out what he would do next and where he would go. And he he wrestled with that um, that question, like many of us throughout his life. And, um, but he always had opportunities brewing. Even as a student at EMU, he and a, he and a classmate were um, working on p- possibly opening a company in DC that would offer Segway tours on the mall. And uh, it didn't end up happening, but it was that kind of thing that MJ was often um, brewing up. So after college, he went to uh, Military Counseling Network in Baumenthal, Germany, which was a placement through Mennonite Mission Network. And MJ's job was to walk alongside soldiers who had been in the front in Iraq and Afghanistan and no longer could in good conscience fight. So MJ had to sort out the guys who just wanted out of the army because they wanted out of the army and the ones who really wanted to take the hard stand of being a conscientious objector. Um, He had gone to Bethany. He had heard the stories of Mennonite peacemakers from his pastor, uh, from his father and grandfather, who at times in their lives had been pastors. He had been in Mark Solwyn's history classes. He knew this Anabaptist deep tradition of peacemaking, and now he was in Germany trying to figure out uh, how to help these soldiers. And he often in at least one case, he helped one escape as the military police were knocking on the guy's front door, ready to take him, either detain him or send him back to the front. And in another case, in, in more than one case, MJ stood alongside these young men as they were in military trials that often sent them to prison for a time for going AWOL and and working towards becoming COs. So MJ did this work for several years and then, and then undertook the grad school degree um, he had been in German classes at EMU. Uh, when he got to, to Germany, one of the things that he undertook was reading War and Peace, one of like the thickest novels in the world, I think, in German. Uh, he loved the language. He, loved, uh, he lived in an intentional community there, and uh, also at night would sneak off and play poker with the army officers. And he used to say, I take their soldiers at the, during the day and their money at night. Um, so uh, this, was, this was part of the complexity and uh, brilliance of, of MJ Sharp. But uh, MJ then got a graduate degree, likewise, in German, uh, before settling back in Goshen for a couple years. And he was looking for what was next. He was looking for that next big adventure. He loved going to, he loved traveling. Uh, he and his father had competed on who could go to the most places. Um, during college, you know, he went to Vienna with Erby Glick. He, his SST was a few weeks in Vietnam, and he was traveling widely otherwise. So uh, he had gone to the Middle East and done a variety of things, but he ended up taking on a role, a new role, with Mennonite Central Committee in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They needed somebody in the eastern part of the country to work with relief programs there, and also to work with the hundred or so armed groups. The 1994 Rwandan genocide um, meant that there were about 100 armed groups in Eastern Congo and uh, MJ would go with others in this church program and go and meet with military leaders of these militias and often sitting underneath the banana trees, uh, listening, uh, listening to them. He told an NPR reporter in 2014, "You can always listen. You can, you can always listen. You can always listen to someone telling you about how they view the world." And so that was kind of a hallmark of MJ's work. He was able to be present with other people. He was able to listen to them, and and by doing so, engage them, and then also earn their trust. And part of this program that MJ was part was in. Um, Urge these military leaders to allow the soldiers to leave the jungle and go back to Rwanda or their families to also leave with them and go back to the places uh, where they could go to school, where they could live in a, a more normal um, residence. And um, so uh, on the eastern part of the country here, the long skinny lake there on the, on, on the eastern side of the Congo is uh, Lake Kivu. And a lot of MJ's work was around that lake. And at the very tip of that lake is Goma and Gesenye, which is along the Congo-Rwandan border. And that city has two names, um, depending on which side of the border you're on. So that was where a lot of MJ's work happened. But during that time with MCC, MJ also became a source for the U.S. State Department on some of these armed groups. He became an expert on one of these armed groups to where in the Congo he was the guy who knew the most about this armed group and was often turned to by diplomats and others who, who needed information about this group. First, in Germany, MJ uh, learned the language of weaponry. He, To to encounter and engage the army or the US military, you kind of had to know what they were saying when they used their jargon. And so MJ learned what the weaponry of the US military was. And in the Congo, he was surrounded by people who were often carrying weapons. Uh, He didn't. He was disarmed. He was unarmed. But he would travel with and often engage these folks uh, who who were carrying weapons. He knew that there was some risk to what he did, but he also believed that, uh, he also took a great deal of precaution and took care to make sure that he wasn't putting himself at undue risk. And so, and was generally trusted and was able as a a member of a church agency, able to travel throughout the country often with Congolese men. But as he did that, he did that humbly. He didn't want to eat different food from them. He didn't want to you know, do the creature comforts um, that, that some of us North Americans would ask for. Um, he would wear the same shirt for five days and, tr- and walk with them to meet these rebel leaders. Uh, that was how MJ undertook this work with a great deal of humility, but also a great deal of um, zeal and uh, loved that work in the DRC, which he called Paradise. Uh, even the DRC um, a lot of us are probably carrying little bits of the Democratic Republic of the Congo in our pockets, whether we know it or not. Um, the minerals from the DRC are used in our cell phones they 're used in our laptops they 're used in our um, in our electric cars because we like lithium batteries and a lot and the coltan and copper and gold that is um, such a big part of the natural resources of the DRC often finds its way into our lives whether we're aware of it or not. We live in a small, globally connected world that gets smaller and smaller, but MJ was one who went into the world and loved being in these places, um, engaging people and trying to make the world a better place. MJ's work with these um, military leaders was often, like I said, convincing them to, to allow their soldiers to go home. And over from 2008 to 2015, of which MJ was a part of this program the last, those last couple years, this program, 1,600 soldiers were allowed to go home and 23,000 civilians. So you can point to a direct impact that MJ had. Um, these rebel leaders would tell him, carry our story back. Tell these people that we're not animals. Tell these people that we're humans. And so that was part of what MJ carried in the work that he did in this world. This is one of those repatriation ceremonies where um, they would return people. Um, there were some of these ceremonies where US diplomats were, were there. Um, but this was the work, um, part of the work that MJ did, as well as the food distribution, the giving of hose and seeds to people who have been displaced by violence. Uh, the DRC has about 5.5 million people who have been displaced because of the violence. And they live, a lot of them live in camps uh, operated by the UN. And uh, MJ worked directly with a lot of those folks, in some cases paid their school fees through an MCC program or distributed food. Um, but this was the way that, that what MJ was doing uh, during his time with MCC. So this is um, a, a clip of the NPR story. Uh, we're not able to play the little bit of audio from it this morning, but um, search the MJ, or the NPR archives, you can find that clip where MJ says, can always listen, as in, he talks about his work in the world. So, MJ's time in MCC was coming to an end. He was trying to figure out what to do next. And he had an opportunity to join the UN group of experts. The Sanctions Committee of the UN Security Council uh, has teams of six people in 20 or 30 countries in the world, um, many of them hotspots, so to speak, uh, assessing what's happening and writing reports so that uh, the UN can o- issue sanctions or so that other things can happen. So MJ took those skills as an investigator that I would point to his time on the weather vane as somewhat the start of, and um, his ability to listen to people and to ask questions and to write well. And so MJ joined this group of six people as an armed groups expert. And the first year was just a member of that group who helped get the reports written, would would go to places in the Congo, uh, sometimes after a village had been burned, he would go in and pick up the bullet casings and the little uh, notebook ledgers and try to figure out who had been responsible and where the weapons had come from, which group had been responsible. And uh, then the second year, after, MJ got a second appointment to the UN group and was the coordinator, which is kind of the leader among friends. He was the liaison between the UN and this group of six people. Um, It's shown here with Christoph Vogel, who was the other armed groups expert, but then there were four others who did finance and mining and human rights. And one of those people was Zaita Catalan, uh, Zida was from Sweden. She had been a rising star in the Green Party, had run for office, but she'd kind of grown disdainful of politics and decided to do different kind of work in the world. And worked in Afghanistan, where she survived um, a suicide bombing in a police station, where she was training officers one day on how to recognize sexual crimes and and also. Um, support the women who were those victims of those crimes. She ended up in the Congo doing some of that similar work on this group, investigating children and, and, and women and their, um, their, their welfare. And So MJ and Zaida were working together um, on, on this last investigation that was likely to, the last inve- investigation that was part of their mandate. Initially, um, it wasn't to be part of their mandate. But a conflict in central, in central part of the Congo had arisen and somebody needed to go find out what was going on. The Congolese army and a tribal group were battling and there were horrible reports of child soldiers being used, children being promised that a little bit of magic potion would protect them from bullets and then being sent into battle. Um, and and there, were, there was a lot of... Um, Nobody was quite sure exactly what was happening, and so MJ and Zyda went to this part of the country in late 2016 and early 2017 to find out what was going on. And they ended up at the Woodland Hotel. on this day, on March 11th, 2017, and they were sitting in this room. This was a picture from Zaida's phone. Uh, Zaida recorded the conversation that day, so we know more of what happened. And you can hear MJ on the recording asking in French, "If we go to visit this, the Kamwena Camo- Nasapu, this tribal group tomorrow, will we be safe? Will we be okay if we go if we're going to visit them?" And the man there in the hat, um, the 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 question is translated from French into a tribal language to him. And he says, oh no, they shouldn't go. And the translator to MJ Anzida says, you'll be fine. So we knew later, we didn't know at the time, but we know later that they were lied to on that day. That the translator who following their deaths went underground and his whereabouts are unknown at this point lied to them that day. And that there was some sort of plot. So on March 12th, they went out to meet with this group uh, they were, they were seen riding motorcycles at a certain point and then they disappeared. And for just over two weeks the search for Michael and Zita was on to try to find them, to try to figure out what had happened to them. They were at first believed kidnapped and as time passed, uh, fears grew. There were prayer vigils I believe here and around the world for, for, for Michael and Zita. And um, people prayed for their safe return. Um, and on, in late March, um the, the worst fears came, were, were, came true. So their bodies were found in a shallow grave by the UN soldiers in the Congo um, and, um, and then were eventually returned to the US where John and Michelle Sharp, after learning that their son had been killed, learning in a way that some military families but few Mennonites families learned that after going into the world and putting themselves in harm's way, they'd lost their lives on behalf of their work for others. Uh, A Swedish researcher named Brian Palmer, who knew Ida, refers to it as civic courage and points to dozens of examples from history. The folks in Nazi concentration camps who put themselves forward to go to a gas chamber rather than the father of young children. And that was the kind of work that, that even though they were taking great care for their own safety, Michael and Zida were working on the behalf of the Congolese people. So their bodies were found. It, um, it created national and international headlines both while they were missing, but then certainly while they were found. Um, and uh, there, was, there were memorial services and funerals and remembrances uh, and, and people um, offered, told story after story about how they knew MJ and Zyda as friends, as people who were making the world a better place, um, and it wasn't just after a death there's often, a, a, we often tend to kind of um, glorify someone or, or leave out the hard parts or leave out you know the the human parts, but uh, there was a note and a tenor to how people remembered MJ and Zyta that that made it clear that people weren't only remembering the good parts, they were just really good people. And uh, they had done these remarkable things in the world. So about a month after um, uh, they went missing, uh, the Congolese government one day called a press conference in Kinshasa, the capital in the western part of the DRC, and showed a six minute and 17 second video of the deaths of Michael and Zyta a horrific video that the UN didn't know existed, the families didn't know existed, was secretly shot with uh, cell phones as Michael and Zida were shot, and then um, Zida was beheaded. So um, we had suddenly this account of their deaths that was horrible. And it was the Congolese government's effort to cast blame on this tribal group. but there were all these pieces that just didn't make sense. And so in the last five years, there's been some tremendous journalism done by some European journalists and by others. Um, The UN's first investigation was, I should have figured out this word before I got up here. It, was, it just was badly done and uh, came under a lot of criti- criticism. The first investigator essentially blamed Michael and Zida for not doing things right. And victim blaming uh, doesn't go very far in this case. So, um, But a second UN investigation has yielded a bit more understanding of what might have happened in that day. And now we know that the Congolese government was likely involved or almost certainly involved in some way in... Um, ordering their deaths. Um, It's the Congolese security forces which have been described to me as kind of a combination of our CIA and FBI uh, infiltrated a violent offshoot of this tribal group and somehow um, were able to plan Michael and Zayda's demise on that day. There's a picture of, of MJ uh, after a long motorcycle ride in the Congo he would walk through the forest to visit folks but he also rode motorcycles he loved motorcycles um, you know in addition to the Porsches that he had had several Porsches that he'd had in high school and college um, he, he loved motorcycles he had his first one he had one in Germany and then he ended up using them in the Congo and it was a way to travel but it was hard dusty dirty travel and uh this is a a picture of a tired m j after on one of those trips. Um, but it's also emblematic of when as he was doing good in the world, it wasn't always um, full of comfort. it wasn't always easy um, It was often exciting uh but not always and but it this was m j as he uh, did this work and um even though i I'm not sure what m j would say about me liking this picture as much as I do and showing it as often as I do. Um, but I like this photo because it, it shows a human who's um, at the moment not, uh, who's kind of sweaty and tired. Um, but I like that image as we think about someone uh, like MJ and the work that he did. So as I interviewed people over four and a half years, more than 100 people, Um, all over the world. I spent a day in Sweden with Zida's mom and sister and visited her grave. I interviewed friends and family of MJ, interviewed some of you in this room. Uh, As I did the work to try to write a book about this guy, uh, I would ask people, was he a martyr? Was he like Dirk Willems in this photo? Or, Or was he a hero? And in our superhero culture, you know, of Marvel comics and such, um, You know we're kind of obsessed with heroes. Um, Don't go watching the Peacemaker series and think that you're going to come anywhere close to MJ Sharp, Um, but but asking whether he was a hero was an interesting question and one that gets teased out a little bit in the book, but also asking whether he was a martyr. MJ wouldn't have wanted to be known as a martyr, um, someone who died for their beliefs. You can probably technically call him one, but a Congolese guy Asked, answered when I asked him, he said, if you make MJ and Zayda martyrs, you wipe out the 10 million pe- the deaths of 10 million people in the Congo. So don't elevate their deaths. They did remarkable work to help our people. But let's not call them martyrs because then you forget about all the Congolese folks who died. As Dr. Huxman said, there's a scholarship fund here in, in, in Michael's name and his legacy is uh, taking root in a variety of ways. There are programs in the Congo that um, sprouted uh, based on his peacemaking teaching and work there. There are a number of young Michaels in the Democratic Republic of the Congo named in honor of him. Once he got to Europe and the Congo, he became known as Michael more than MJ because MJ's really hard to say in French. So, um, but, so there are Michaels now all over the world and his legacy continues. There are stories that we tell here at EMU of him as a former student and there are stories that we can tell in other places. And I think that Michael, Michael's story can teach us an awful lot about listening, about how to undertake work in the world, how to go and do, go and be, and, and engage the world deeply and try to make it a better place um, and in doing so uh, embody the love of Christ. So with that uh, we have a few minutes for questions.
0: So we're sending, um, we're having microphones here in the aisles in Lehman Auditorium, and uh, if you have a question, stand or or raise your hand. Uh, We'll feature questions here in this space, but also if anyone's following on Facebook, EMU's Facebook page, and a question's posted there and you want to say it, please do, um, or Zoom. I'll give you a chance for the first question, but I also have one. All right, let me start with mine. Um, Marshall, so as a researcher and author, a part of MJ's life and legacy, in what ways does his story impact and influence you, both personally and professionally? How does his story shape your story?
2: Yeah, Christy Kaufman, uh, a recent EMU grad who did the documentary on MJ, uh, during during her time as a student here. I encountered her the other night in Washington DC and she said there's no way to tell MJ's story without being changed by it and um, and, I, and I think that's true. I mean MJ has taught me um, again that, that notion of being able to listen to anyone that I think is often missing in our modern world. Um, it's really easy to complain about our neighbors political signs that annoy us and really harder than it should be to go ask them what that's about. Um, We've become really polarized and I think MJ's uh, notion that you can always listen to someone uh, is a helpful one and I think also too I understand what it means to be Anabaptist and what it means to be Mennonite and how complex that can be and how in the modern realm we wrestle with that. It doesn't look like it did for our grandparents and such, but uh, we, we wrestle with that and in doing so kind of reshape that. So those are some of the key ways, I think.
0: Questions of clarification? Just anything that you're pondering. Could be about the writing process.
3: Um, rather a simple question, or a complicated one, um, why MJ? Yeah,
2: I was deeply affected uh, when he went missing and, when he w- and then when he was found. I, I read the headlines, and I wasn't in a journalism newsroom at that point, um, either assigning or doing the story and then moving on. And so I think it, it stuck with me a bit. I thought he was a fascinating character who had gone and done amazing work in the world and had a tragic, messed up death and I thought there's more to to tell here potentially. And I thought it was really a modern Anabaptist tale. Um, I mean, we have this thick book called The Martyr's Mirror of these tales of martyrs. Let's not put MJ in that, but let's ask the questions of what his role in the world and what context he may have been part of. And the book you know again um you have to try to make something cohesive and readable and we're all complex humans i'm pretty sure mj didn't plan somebody to come along behind him and write a book about him um but i uh so that work uh was hard and messy at times but it also i think there are uh i mean we we live by stories our own stories and those that we tell about ourselves and and about others and here was a chance to tell a story about Um, a remarkable man, um, without whom the world is not as good a place.
0: We could end right there or we could take one more. Oh, we have two hands up. And so which one? Beth, this is the final question.
2: Um, So I was actually working with MCC and living in Eastern Congo um, when MJ was murdered. Um, and there are some significant inconsistencies with the u n timeline and as you alluded to just what they reported about what had happened and how it had happened. how did you find like did you did you witness- did you see
0: those inconsistencies, and how were you able to sort of um work through that to to kind of publish what the story was
2: yeah as I mean, with any of these. Um, with all of the work of of telling the story of MJ's life, um, you're sifting and weighing and, and you tend to trust the work of other journalists. I learned to trust the work of some other expats from the Congo Who were working in the Congo and a French journalist named Sonia Rolli who did some remarkable work to hold people accountable, hold the UN and others accountable and say this doesn't jive, this doesn't make sense. And the other thing is that over time we came to know a lot more and things became clearer and continue to become clearer even as they remain murky if you will. So uh, just two weeks ago there were 51 men sentenced for their deaths Um, 22 in absentia Um, most of them sentenced to death though the Congo doesn't have a death penalty so they're essentially sentenced to life in prison and it's it doesn't all fit together Um, but and who ordered these deaths those people weren't haven't been put on trial so um, there continues to be this kind of like well what really happened or why did this happen and what really happened even though there are pieces that we know clearly from the video and otherwise Uh, but Sonia Rowley and some other journalists really did help Distinguish what happened that day and and why the UN's initial assessment was uh, pretty faulty. So. Uh, We do have some, we have books for sale uh, as in the back lobby. I'm happy to sign books or if you brought books today, I'm happy to sign those. Uh, We'll hang out as long as you need to. And um, there is also a mug uh, in honor of MJ as part of this that uh, a potter in Goshen who knew his older sister well uh, made that has the, you can always listen phrase on it. So um, I'm happy to engage you back there and answer more questions. It's lovely to be here today. Thank you.
0: And let's share our appreciation. So, give us just another minute for some campus announcements. The books are out in the foyer, and you also might see um, Marshall in our in our cafeteria for a meal today or tomorrow. If you do, he'd love to talk with you. This is Haley.
3: Hi everyone, Um, my name is Haley. I'm just gonna be highlighting some things that are happening this week and next week. So today at four o'clock, a JMU professor will be presenting and sharing her skills on calligraphy. Um, Tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. in the UC, there is a Black History Month poetry slam. On Friday at 5.30 in the East Dining Room, there will be open conversations, which is led by some of the student chaplains. Um, The Share the Love food drive will continue until next Monday, so you can get food into various boxes around campus. Um, At 8 o'clock in Common Grounds on Sunday evening, there will be celebration with um, food and fellowship provided beforehand. Um, And these are just a few of the many events happening, so if you want to see all of them, you can go to EMU's calendar online. And thank you all for coming to Convo, and I hope you have a great rest of the day.